Good morning, Randy. Good morning, Marshall. Welcome to Tech Talk. Yeah, our first uh, topic today is going to be an exciting one that we get asked about a lot. It's a common misunderstanding area. It's around seismic systems. We've got a couple special guests with us today. One of them is Patty Birch with Polyprocessing Company, French Camp, California. Patty, you've been here 31 years? 31 years, yes. And Good morning. And your position with Polyprocessing is? Spec Review and Development. Okay. And then, Randy, you have someone to introduce. Right. We have uh, John Avilano. Is that right, John? That's correct. I say his last name right. And uh, he's with Lane Engineering. He's been a partner with us, Patty, for, for quite some 20 time. 20-plus years. Yes. yes. Correct. They're a, they're a structural engineering firm, and they do a lot with Seismic. They're uh, based right here in uh, Tulare, California. Is that how you say it? Yes, correct. I know it's down by Fresno. I've stopped and seen you. Yeah, there. I always say halfway between Bakersfield and Fresno. There you go. That or it's be... not the end of the world where you can see it from there. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, we're uh, happy to have you here with us, and we're excited to have you talk to us a little bit about Seismic today and kind of what you do with us in our seismic systems. And we make a much better seismic system than I think anybody else in the chemical storage world. And we would like to talk a little bit about what's involved with all that today. And Patty, you've been running these systems for polyprocessing, kind of driving it with our partners. Yes, yes. So uh, one of the thoughts we would start off with is around the International Building Code. And I thought John could uh, start us off with that. That's what drives a lot of this. And it's a constantly moving target. Is that right, John? That's correct. So um, back in the day, there used to be a lot of different building codes. But I don't know, about 10, 15 years ago, they probably almost standardized them, made them into one set of building codes called the International Building Code, and each state adopts them. And so different states have different requirements, but California, especially California, is usually kind of at the top of it, and they adopt usually the latest standards. So every three years, that International Building Code gets updated. And so we're in this year, 2019, um, California is going to adopt the 2019 International Building Code, I believe it is. No, I'm sorry, the 2018 International Building Code, and in California... Right, because the code is always a little bit behind whatever the current time is. That is correct. They're correct. But then California adds all their amendments on top of it, and so then California adopts it, and that becomes like the model building code, and then California makes their own, so it's the 2019 California Building Code. Right, and so the other states do a similar process? That's correct. And, you know, California's always been a leader here, of course, because of your geological data that you have to deal with here. Yeah, especially with the seismic. So California is kind of always at the forefront of the, the building codes. Yeah, it's definitely becoming, Patty, right, a thing all over the country. We're yes, seeing, we see it from all the states now. And, and the interesting trend here, John, if you could speak to this, is it's becoming more and more address specific instead of just like what county or region of the country how does that work? Right. Uh, again, going back before b older building codes, it used to be just a map, and you kind of get in your general area, and you can f figure out, okay, here's my seismic zone, what they used to call it. Mm -hmm. And now uh, and now they changed it about, again, 10, 15 years ago when they went to the International Building Code. It, it changed a little bit. Now they, they go by specific area, and it's specifically a lat latitude and longitude. And now even with the wind, and going with the wind now, it's very uh, site-specific as well. So to catch, Patty, catch everybody up with how we do it at polyprocessing right now, and this is already a differentiation from our competition, we ask when somebody calls in and they want to uh, stamp seismic-wise, um, we have some standard systems, and we also kind of determine if they need something specific, and we work with Lane Engineering at that point. Can you go over how does that work for us when it comes to specific addresses? Well, if a customer calls and they say they need a restraint, the first thing we want to get from them is the physical address so that we can put it in the system and see if the values are higher than our standard. And if they are, then we have to see what restraint we're going to have to use. And a lot of times it does change if the values are really high, especially in California. And where do you get those values from? We have a spreadsheet that we use that John has developed for us that we can put the uh, information into. 
And you, you check, I've seen also uh, directly on the geological data right. uh, from the government, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So we check that. That's where some of the numbers come from. Well, we Tom's. have a site that we plug the address into, and mm-hmm. then it generates the um, values for us differently than the older site. Now it, it generates the S sub S and the S sub 1 that we need to put in the spreadsheet, and it goes from there. And so, so that's good that you bring those up. Those are some of the values that you hear a lot, John. Can you talk roughly what those are about? Yeah, so each, uh, again, um, each location has a, a, its own spectral acceleration is what it is, and it's dependent on how, f- how fast or slow the ground's going to move during a specific earthquake. And so the um, USGS, United States Geological Society, they have a, a website that's mapped all these different um, acceleration values um, all over the, the continental United States. And with that, um, you, you can get your, your design seismic zones or design seismic acceleration factors for that. And just recently, they stopped um, publishing that data, and uh, a couple other entities have picked it up, though. And th- those are the ones we're starting to use now. And, and, and they're, they're pretty good. They're pretty good ones. One's, one's from ASCE. Um, and they have, besides the seismic specific data for the SS and S1 values, they also have the specific wind values for that right. location too. So the wind, and that, that's interesting. Now the wind comes into the picture, um, and just to keep everybody out there informed, Patty, can you differentiate for us what parts of our system are for wind and what's for seismic? Yes. Um, if, if the system is going to be outdoors, then wind is going to be involved. So when they tell us it's going to be an outdoor system, it generates a system with clips and cables. If it's going to be indoor, it's only for clips, except if there's buoyancy involved. If there's buoyancy, usually the cables have to be used as well indoors. And buoyancy would be a concern if like, it could become a flooded area. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, uh, so the clips is mostly for the seismic and yes. then the cables for the wind when that comes into play. Yeah. And that, that's correct because in a, in a wind event, we use the cables for wind uplift. So we look at two scenarios when the tank is empty. And so the tank is just very, very light and, and doesn't weigh that much. And so the, the tank can lift up and, and, um, and move around versus the, uh, on the seismic event, the, the tank is full. We look at that tank, it's full because that's what's going to create your seismic mass in there and then with the seismic mass um, the tank is actually stable against overturning from flipping over and so with that it, it won't um, it won't uplift and so you don't need the cables and the only thing we're resisting now at that point is just a sliding force and that's with the restraints at the bottom so we do in some cases uh, restraint systems for wind only right yes uh, not in california specifically but other places right. in the country where it's just a wind event and not a seismic issue right Right, and the wind I know has been increasing, especially along the coastal. That was a big change in the last IBC code, right, was that they upped, I think, the wind speeds from, you know, I think it got up to 130 or so around the coastal areas, or where is it now, John? I think it's up to 140, 150 miles per hour at a three-second gust, but it's, it's, it's called an ultimate wind load, and so you can bring those down to a strength level or a stress level force, but it's, it's more code language there, mm-hmm. but it is up to 150 miles per hour um, in some areas. And, and what is coming with the, is this a part of the new 2019, uh, or is it be the 2018 code we said, right? Yes. Correct. In 2019. Yes, yes. It's actually, it's always been there, and we have used it in, in specific areas, because I actually, I think it might be even higher than 150. I think it's, it can go up to 180, maybe 200. I have to look at the maps. I don't quite remember. But especially around the, the, the coastal areas in the, the southeast. Right. 
So, so Patty, you know, we, we always keep our systems up to date by checking in with John and Lane Engineering, um, and we keep our internal spreadsheets always up to date, so anytime a new quote is being requested, we're keeping current with the most current IBC yes, code. Yes, that's true. So as these things happen, John, you just basically um, update our formulas and all the other things that go into making that determination. That's correct, yep. So, John, one of the important things I understand from talking with you is how important friction is when it comes to making determinations around what a seismic system can be. And before I come to you, Marshall, I think, you know, back in the day we did studies, polyprocessing did, on friction values. Can you speak to that? That's right. So we had a third-party engineer that actually came in, uh, did some testing at our facility with some tanks that were both empty and full, and looked at friction uh, the tanks being, you know, using friction and then also like being on a bed of marbles. I think, Patty, was that right? Something that like that. That sounds right, yes. Um, and we got to a point where we're using friction and have been for several years now, right, John? Yeah, over 20 years. Yeah, so I'm not sure who else has done that testing. I know the polyprocessing company has. Exactly. I mean, if you're working with a design engineer on a seismic system and, you know, your uh, competitor can't provide a basis of, you know, where their seismic calculations come from, friction's one of those really important elements that we've studied. And we've done that in the past with our plastic tanks, and now we're working with some other surfaces like foam pads. But we've done that for concrete as well, or you have concrete data? Yeah, we have concrete data. And again, those, those friction values are very important because without those friction values, there's no way we can do the, the simplified system that polyprocessing has. It just the, the friction, without friction, the, the seismic force, especially nowadays, the seismic forces would be very high, and it would be very tough to make a restraint system work. That's an important differentiation right there of how intensely we look at a properly designed seismic system and what we've built from that. Um, you know, what I would like to do, Patty, is come back to that address point because this, you know, brings up some other questions, I think. But could you go back to the address thing? I know you're always making a point with our own inside application group to get an address mm -hmm. when somebody's looking at a seismic quote. We don't always get that. We just get what state it's in. Right. But right. why is it that you're wanting that specific address? What does it allow you to do? Well, for example, if they call and they say they're going to put a tank in one of the other states, like Indiana, Illinois, whatever, but if they call and they say they're putting it in Oakland, California, or San Francisco, California, or Long Beach, California, we definitely need an address because the, the fault lines are so much greater in those areas. And so that also relates directly to what kind of a cost the system will be exactly. as far as options go, right? Correct. You can look at different combinations of the robustness of the clip mm -hmm. as well as the quantity of them and mm -hmm. see what things can vary to give the best system package price. So like, for example, if it's a tank going, say, to Indiana and it's a not a very big tank and it could take the smaller clips because the knuckle radius is smaller, then we could get away with three or four clips instead of eight clips, depending on the tank size and the value of the address. Yeah, but we, without an address, we can't do that. Right. Correct. And with the concrete, too, the concrete can be a lot smaller thickness, or, uh, and then also the edge distance from the tank to the edge of the concrete can be a lot less, too, because the seismic forces are so low down there or over there. Right. And that's what the, you brought forth. Another thing we wanted to talk about a little bit is the concrete foundation itself. So when you're talking about the edge distance, can you elaborate on that a little bit more? What do partners need to be aware of when they're talking to a contractor and pouring a concrete pad? What are some of the key elements to keep in mind? Correct. The, the, the anchor products nowadays have to meet very stringent um, seismic requirements. And so it's a very robust calculation now to do anchorage calculations. And the driving factors, there's two driving factors, the, the concrete thickness 
and the edge distance from the from the tank really it's from the bolt the center line of the bolt to the edge of the concrete but for, for ease of installation we always measure it from the um, face of the tank to the edge of the concrete and with those two two items we have to we can depending on the seismic values we can either decrease the thickness of the concrete decrease the edge distance or use a combination of the two to get them down or up just to make the the, the calculation work out and again, that's going to be address specific in order to be able to look at that, right? That is correct. So, Patty, when we provide the data sheets now, do we um, is that pointed out to our partners what that edge distance is? Yes. On the bottom of the data sheet, it says how many bolts you're going to have to use, how much the embedment is required, and what the minimum concrete thickness is and the minimum edge distance. Right. We group all that together because those are kind of the key elements right. the contractor needs right. to be aware of. Now, when we're talking about concrete pads, do we also talk to them about what kind of concrete to use as far as a, you know a slump mix or something like that as far as the concrete itself now nowadays we just go based on the strength of the concrete okay. and, and so that the minimum is uh, 2500 psi is the base minimum a lot of actually states in certain seismic areas you have to actually have use 3000 psi okay but the higher the, the strength of the concrete again that's one of those factors we could be using to play and, and reduce some of those uh, thickness requirements embedment depth or edge distance okay so patty let's go back to more on this concrete base when we're working with designers and want to know some of the application data that we need to kind of build a system around there's a few th a few more things besides the address that maybe need to be known what are some of those things we want to consider well for example if they have a facility that's already built and they have their concrete already in place if they can tell us what their pad shapes are and the tanks they're using then we can quickly see if they're going to have enough room to put the clips or if their pads are octagon, octagon or hexagon shape, that can be a factor on what we decide can work for them. Because that goes into the clip to edge distance, right? Right, right. And mm -hmm. that's very critical. So the other thing is like if they say their pad's only four inches thick and we say the embedment needs to be six inches, then John's going to ask me uh, what's underneath that, what's the foundation floor thickness, and then we can determine if we can use any of that or not. Gotcha. So, John, wh wh how is that important as far as the type of surface? Like, can we put, can, we've talked about concrete, can somebody put a tank on, say, dirt or asphalt? You could, but I couldn't do any seismic calculations for it. Um, that, that's the important point is because we have to have some, at least some testing data behind it to, in order to back up our calculations. It's not to say you, you couldn't do it, but to have a seismic um, uh, set of st stamp calculations, that'd be difficult, and, and we couldn't do that at this point. Right, because, you know, to get that stamp, you're working off of known data, you know, and that's something I appreciate about polyprocessing is that we're going to go in a safety arena where we know the results instead of guesswork. That is correct, yep. So uh, the other thing to talk about a little bit here with, uh, uh, you know, different types of pads are uh, other pads coming onto the market. So we're working with a foam pad, which is a polyurea coated uh, polyurethane foam pad. And so these are going to have different friction coefficients, but these also you can put a seismic system on? Yes, uh, yes you can. Okay, good. But they have to be... But they have to be tall clips. Tall clips, because you really you want the clips to still get to the tank, right? Right. The pad has to cover the tank. On so the pad. typically, our pads are about four inches in depth, and then the clip has to take that plus whatever is required for the the height to make the clip work. So even on the slope bottoms, we're looking even taller sometimes yes. because we've got that backside that's really tall, and then the short side where the info is. Right. Right. 
That's so. correct. Mm -hmm. So these uh, these will be kind of custom systems that you know will get a, again based on a specific address. It'll have basically taller clips, mm -hmm. and then the number will still be determined by kind of what that address is. The same engineering concept, but it's just a different product that we're using a taller clip. And in a perfect world, we would rather prefer our customer to have concrete pads. If yes. They could, obviously, yes. because yes. again, you're talking about the expense of a pad that we're supplying. Mm -hmm. versus a concrete pad, but then again, the clips and that seismic system could be quite a bit more expensive. Very the expensive. Tall the tall clips are very expensive. Right. The other thing that can come into play to help somebody get a better system price on a seismic system would be, you were talking about it earlier, Patty, was the weight that's going to be on that concrete. Mm -hmm. John, what is our basis of design that we kind of calculate around as far as weight goes? We use a specific gravity of 1.9, but that's just, I think that's the, almost one of the worst cases that yes. polyprocessing does see for their chemicals. And, but we can, I mean, if it's, if it's water, we can go down all the way 1.0, so that's a almost a 50% cut in your seismic forces. Exactly, and then if not brought up otherwise, it has some service factor in there, you know, for, you know, engineers are always looking for that extra service factor protection. Yes. Right. So, John, I want to ask about the spacing that the clips go around the tank as well. We need a little bit of space because obviously the tank expands, so we don't want it to kind of come directly in contact with the clip. Mm -hmm. And we say an inch is kind of the golden rule that everybody knows. But, John, you have a little bit of a kind of a little bit of way that some money can be saved, and there's a little bit of play there. Can you talk about that in the spacing of these clips? Correct. Um, we can always go to a half inch. We don't, of course, we don't want to go all the way to, to zero because then there could create some stresses around the tank, especially when the tank bulges or expands a little bit at the bottom. Um, and then from, from there, we can go to, um, so a good ideal is to a half inch, maybe all the way up to one inch would be the best. And so if you went to a half inch, how would that save some money? That would be less concrete, possibly. Yeah, correct. So, I mean, it's a half inch all around the tank. So, you know, sometimes in these tight industrial environments, um, every half inch counts. Mm-hmm, exactly. Well, one of the things that comes up on occasion are finite element analysis, or FEAs. And maybe you guys can talk just Patty or John, um, why we run them and, and what the need is for, you know, doing those calculations. Sure. Sometimes the specifications are just the customer's requirements. Um, they want to design the tank specifically. Normally, we're just designing the restraint system and not the tank itself. But the ASTM that the polyethylene tanks, um, the polyprocessing tanks are designed for, um, only deals with hydrostatic loading. But so when they want to design the tank to specifically deal, deal with wind or seismic forces, um, then you have to design the tank itself. And so we use a, a finite element analysis, just a fancy term for designing the tank, and we're using com um, computer models. And with that, we can actually design the tank itself for the seismic and wind forces. Okay. So, Patty, on the FEA, I would like to kind of move the discussion a little bit into some things our partners deal with with the specifications. And when we come into us, we have to review that and in the submittal process. Some of the issues we deal with there, FEA is one of these, right? Sometimes we'll see that the specification is asked for an FEA on the tank. Or how, how does it get usually worded that we feel like an FEA is our answer? If the spec basically says that calculations are required on the tank design then that indicates to us that they will need the FEA. So the way we would prefer it to be in our own spec language, so that it just has to be on the seismic system, would be how? Would be saying that calculations are required for the tank's restraint system. And, and not on the tank and itself. And not on the tank itself. But we can quote the FEA for them if the spec dictates that. 
Exactly. So one of the people we now have in the room with us is our project manager, Brandon Hall. Good morning, Brandon. Good morning, guys. We invited him in because this is part of what Brandon helps us with is uh, getting our submittals returned back and anything that we have to take exception to or elaborate on. And Brandon, what are some other issues that you see? I would like to start with one that you mentioned before, which is when the material of the Hilti bolt is called out. Yeah, or the restraint clip itself. If it's not mild steel or um, galvanized steel or stainless steel, there's really, as far as my understanding goes, no design basis for being able to actually calculate that that material will withstand the forces that will be exerted on it. Um, that's something John could help probably explain a little bit better. But we are, as of right now, limited with, um, with stainless steel anchor rods and either carbon steel galvanized uh, epoxy coated or stainless steel actual clips themselves. So if a spec called it for it to be something other than stainless steel, some other alloy, that would be something we don't have data on. Is that right, John? Correct, especially for the anchor bolts. Um, we use um, the third-party um, commercial vendors for the, the anchor bolts, and they have not tested their products for these other alloys. And so we always have to rely back on their reports and their testing values for the anchorage products, and they just don't have it yet. At least a couple years ago that when I last checked with them, but... Um, it's always good to update and check again with them, um, see if they've updated their, 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 their testing. Right. We, we tend to work with Hilti bolts, correct? But there's some other options out there? Yes. Uh, Simpson, Simpson Products is also out there. Redhead um, is another one. I'm sure there's, uh, there's plenty of other ones. But Hilti seem to be always one of the ones that had a lot of good testing data behind it. Um, but that's not to say that, that we couldn't use other ones. I was saying before that the Anchorage product is actually a robust, ro robust pretty calculation. And so we... Uh, if there is going to be a change in product, we would have to redesign that anchor. So, Brandon, let's talk about some other things that you run into in either submittals or talk with Patty on spec design. Uh, what other kind of issues around seismic do you see? Uh, a lot of times in the actual seismic section of a specification, whether it be in the general spec or uh, a related section, um, a lot of times the engineer will refer to an incorrect section of the code. Um, and, and I think that has, John, you can help me with this, a lot to do with it being a, a building structure or not a building structure. Is that correct? That's correct. For our purposes for the polyethylene tank restraint design, um, the, the, there's two sections. The, we consider the tanks non-building structures. And that's in, in a certain document called ASCE 7, which is the, like the model building code that the actual building code references. And so for non-building structures, there's a specific section in there that says tanks and vessels. And that's what we design our, our, our restraint system for. And in there, you can use friction, and it has values for all your seismic um, information you need to design the restraint system. There's a whole other section in that ASCE 7 document for equipment supported by structures. Now, that would be for your air conditioning systems, that would be for your uh, architectural elements, all those different types of things, which we're not in, in that Not a freestanding tank. Not a freestanding tank. The only time it comes into our system design is when we're going to be actually supported by a structure, when it's on the fifth story of a building mm. or, or when it's on the roof of a building. But those are very, very rare events. Mostly, uh, most of our tank designs are actually right on the ground level. So then we're actually at a, a non-building structure and a tank and vessel in that section. Excellent. You know, John, with the stamps, let's talk about the stamps. You know, we, we often get asked for the wet stamp, and sometimes um, there's an alternative to that. Can you talk a little bit about what a wet stamp covers and, you know, what else is available? 
Yeah, so with the technology nowadays, it's kind of a, what is a wet stamp, but um, back in the day, it used to be actually physically stamp it with your rubber stamp and sign it and then mail it off. And now nowadays, we just, we can use an electronic signature, which is just, I just um, embedded in the, in the PDF and then mail it off. And that's what we consider a wet stamp signature. If a customer does want a physical um, a signature mailed to them, we can still do that. But uh, m most jurisdictions and um, are, are allowing uh, electronic and that'll be stamped uh, right, Brandon, from the state. You'll have a state stamp. That's correct. Yep, yep, exactly. And the other option, too, is if an actual wet stamp is not required, um, as Lane Engineers, being a very good partner of ours, has supplied uh, myself as well as others with the ability to provide a basic design, a data sheet that shows you um, the calculation. It just doesn't have an actual engineer stamp on it. So that is available as well. And that's usually what you'll provide in your submittal data? Absolutely. Yeah, one of the things we get asked sometimes, John, is for an explanation of the calculations, which, of course, we are not in the business of teaching people your business. <laughs> but uh, there's a lot of science and uh, a lot of uh, you, you'd have to go to school for a while to understand the calcs, as they say. Yeah, the spreadsheet the spreadsheet is, a, is an Excel spreadsheet, and just all, all the formulas are kind of hidden behind the, the spreadsheet. But we also provide um, a couple other documents with our calculations that, that is like a base of the design, the kind of a rationale of how the spreadsheet is actually calculating the forces. Brandon, I think, uh, did you have any others that we run into? Actually, I just had one last one in regards to uh, molded-in tie-down lugs. Uh, John, we have molded-in lifting lugs designed to lift an empty tank. What would be the difference in that regard? Well, we don't never really design for the lifting ducts to actually hold for a seismic or a wind event. It's not really something we would want to do. Um, from what I understand, too, sometimes when the tank is, is filled with the mold, it doesn't even completely fill in sometimes. And there, there's always just been designed for the empty weighted tanks. I don't think it would be um, prudent to, do, to do use it for the design of the restraint system. Well, this is, uh, this is really good having you here today, John. Obviously, I think you helped our partners get a sense of how thoroughly we look into seismic. I guess the thing I'd like to end on a little bit is talking about how we can customize PADI to any kind of situation. And so a lot of these are standard systems. We have in our regular spec language some general recommendations around seismic. But when customers run into something specific, we're willing to look at that custom. And you you have some examples of this. Yes. Yeah, so if a customer has a pad that's not big enough, or is not thick enough to meet our standard, we can present those um, measurements and the tank type, the tank weight, everything to John, and he can help us to either come up with a system that will fit or design a unique system that we can have built. Right, I remember there was a situation where you were telling me we even had uh, somebody that wanted their specific wind speeds and calculated around an exact wind speed. And, and John, we can you do that. Out with that. Yes. yes. So, John, you'd be willing for us to uh, bring a customer on the phone from one of our partners if they had a city that had like special concerns around this and how the seismic system. We could get into a conversation with you. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I always pride ourselves on customer service too. So, I'd be always willing to talk to somebody. And it's why we really appreciate you as a partner. We uh, like everything at Polyprocessing. Want to build a very uh, safe and long-lasting system. So we partner with the best in the business. And John, thanks for being well, here with us. Thank you for saying that. Well, as we come to a close, we want to thank our special guests again, Patty Birch and John Adelano. And uh, Randy, this has been good uh, hanging out with you and looking forward to the next Tech Talk. Yes, I'm excited. We're going to have a one on NSF 61 and we have some other good topics. So everybody should stay tuned. <laughs>